Whenever I visit France, I always see lots of top bottles for sale, but when I get back home, those same bottles can be much harder to find, if not impossible. That's why I use IdealWine.com. At IdealWine.com, I can buy wines directly from France for delivery directly to my home. They have new auctions every week, and the fixed price selection is equally awesome. Clos Rouchard, Chateau Reyes, and Ulysse Colon, as well as many more greats from all over France, are regularly available on the website. Best of all, it is simple and hassle-free to buy them. Ideal Wine handles all the customs and logistics hurdles for you and for me. Wines are ordered with a couple of clicks, and then they arrive. It is simple. Check out IdealWine.com for more information. That's I-D-E-A-L-W-I-N-E.com to find what you'd like to be drinking. I'll drink to that, where we get behind the scenes of the beverage business. I'm Levy Dalton. I'm Erin Scala. And here's our show today. Paul Greco on the show. Hello, sir. How are you? I'm awesome, Levy. How are you? Very nice to have you. It's an honor to be at your abode. So you actually are Canadian. You grew up in Canada. I am a Canadian Which citizen. Which is something Canadians do. <laughs> <laughs> that, they, that is true. Those two things are connected sometimes. Yes, myself and Ted Cruz of Canadian origin. I, I didn't know you were going to go for the Cruz one. You I got to go there fast. Yeah, the missile. Just pull it out. So what was that like? I mean, what was the childhood Paul? Childhood Paul was one who grew up in the restaurant industry was one who grew up in a pseudo-Italian environment because my father's family is of Italian extraction, but I'm fourth generation. My mother's family is of Irish and German extraction. I think it's a classic combo at the end of the day. And while I didn't have to choose sides, no one told me I had to be more Italian, but we were a Canadian family. But I love the Italianness of the restaurant and therefore I pretended to be more Italian than not but it was very cool in that my grandfather started a restaurant in 1961 in Toronto my father started working there on the very first day and then as I like to at least think I was literally born there in 1965 so I grew up in the restaurant world I grew up in the Italian restaurant world though not a lick of Italiano was spoken at my home so you were actually born at the restaurant well my father was at the restaurant when my mom was giving birth and had to be called down to the uh, the hospital to see me. But I, I like to think that I was born there, considering how I've spent the majority of my life since. So your grandfather must have started it kind of later in life if your dad my was My grandfather, already... who I take great pride in saying that when I did start working at the restaurant after my university career, I got to work with my grandfather, my grandmother, my father, my mother for seven years, six days a week. And so the relationship I had with my grandparents, especially, I prize greatly because I don't think a lot of people have that intense relationship. And so uh, grandpa, when he started it, had already been in business for 25 years selling liquor for Corby's Distillery. Rumors are that he ran spirits into the States during Prohibition. Nothing has ever been written. I haven't seen proof of that. But yeah, at 50 years of age, he resigned from that role and started one of Canada's first formal Italian restaurants. It's 
Hard enough now to change jobs midlife, but to do it back then must have been insane. And I don't know. I think he saw an opening in the marketplace. Um, but to be honest, I really don't know. But yeah, Canada's first formal Italian restaurant called La Scala. A lot of the people who work there in those early days and through the years that I were there came to Canada uh, for the World's Fair in 1967 in Montreal. Like, you look at the New York restaurant community in the 40s, 50s, 60s, a lot of those people came for the World's Fair. I think the one in New York was when, 39, the first, and then 60. And it they stayed. And they populated restaurants. They introduced new cuisines. And so my family's restaurant was, sort of got a genesis from that and from my grandfather's creation too. So I cool. assume there was a staircase there was a goddamn staircase. What was the place like? Well, the, the, the name came about not because it was uh, an old home that had a grand staircase as soon as you opened the front door, but for what the name La Scala implied. The La Scala Opera House in Milan, it was grandeur, it was opulence, it was those things. It was formal, and that's what my grandfather was going after. It was an old home in downtown Toronto, very old school, Red carpets, heavy gold curtains, double tablecloths, formal in every way, shape, and form. All the food came out of the kitchen on huge trays, on small uh, silver platters. It was plated at the table side on the sternos. It was insane. The flambés, the Caesar salad, the savory flambés, the sweet flambés. We did it all. Was one of your family a big showman? Because when I think of that kind of restaurant, I think, oh, put on a big show. I don't think so. My grandfather, I would have to say, was hospitality personified. He was a gracious gentleman, always a smile, incredibly kind, a consummate salesman, which is what we all need to be in this business, which we all are, ultimately. My father, I think, was a little bit more business-oriented, um, focused on the details, studious to a fault. Neither my grandfather or my father were cooks. No one in my family were cooks. They were liking it to Sirio Macione. Le Cirque was his creation, and I would think for a lot of his original chefs, he dictated the menu and had these individuals make his creations. That's what we did. My parents, my grandparents were never in the kitchen. My father would do research at home about certain recipes, walk in the next day, hand it to the chef and say, here's how you make it. Let me taste it. And my father had this incredible, has this incredible innate sense of taste and flavor and balance to say, okay, on point, no, make this change. So I think them working together was, you know, grandpa might, was the first and foremost, the the people person, the glad handing, all of that. And and dad was more of the business person. At least that's how I saw it. I learned a lot from both of them. And the show of the restaurant was that at the time in the 60s and 70s, that's what most restaurants were about. And then in the 80s, admittedly, that's what restaurants were not about. Because I will confess, there was a lot of inconsistency in that table side service. Some captains could manage a station. I can't even see, I never learned, unfortunately, any of those things. I can't even see me today running my station at a restaurant, having to do tableside service at every single goddamn one. Are you kidding me? It would never, I, it would go up in smoke every single night. But anyway, that's what we did. And I think it was a standard bearer for a lot of years. And then unfortunately, it got to a point where the restaurant world was passing us by. But do you think that 
your grandfather open it up so he could spend more time with his family? I mean, why would he lead it? With- you know, I, I've, I'm embarrassed to say, Levy, that I've never asked my father why he actually started there on the first day. My father graduated from university, worked for a pasta import company. He did other things. And then he was there on the first day. I think his father asked him to work with him. Um, and I think they made a great team. Um, but, you know, nothing greater than that. What did they tell you? I mean, did you feel like you had something to live up to with those two guys around? Family businesses are glorious. And family businesses suck to high heaven. The the daily pressure. While the restaurant was open six days a week, we lived that business seven days a week. We got We broke bread together as a family on Sundays. And what did we talk about? The restaurant. So <laughs> you could not escape it. It became all-consuming which I loved, but conflict resolution, forget about it. Talking through things entirely, forget about it. You don't, maybe other family businesses are different. Ours, unfortunately, not everything was passed down from generation to generation. In all the years that I worked at La Scala, my father never showed me a P&L. I had, he taught me a lot. My grandfather taught me a lot, but did they teach me the business of the industry? No. And that was to either protect me from some of those things or things that I didn't need to know that each one of us had our role and the roles didn't cross. I'm somewhat embarrassed by it, but I revel more in the, the honor of having to, of getting to work with my grandfather and my grandparents and my father and mother. I can see a father not wanting to scare his son by looking at a loss for a month, say, you know? Yeah, you know, I wanted to know a lot more than my dad was willing to do. My grand, my father was one of those individuals, is one of those individuals who, when asked to do something or given responsibilities, says quite simply, I'll take care of it. But dad, can, no, I'll take care of it. But what about, no, it's taken care of, which provides great um, security for a family. Awesome. But I really wanted and needed to know. And some conversations were much easier with my grandfather about business than they were with my father. And eventually my leaving Toronto in 1991 to come to the States was wanting to get broader experience, but wanting to learn things that I felt that I unfortunately was not going to get from my father for whatever reason. He was a bit of a mystery man sometimes. He... I never looked at him as a mystery man. I, I knew exactly who he was, and I love him for that every to this very day. I will say that with my children, though, I over-explain. I try to do the exact opposite of what my father... I want to share in all the information that I have, regardless of what they're going to do. Every moment is a learning moment. And my father, maybe it was trial by fire. He didn't... He opened the door. He pushed me through it. And then let it happen, for better, for worse. I had some of my greatest restaurant moments managing at La Scala, and I had some of the most frustrating, worrisome, embarrassing moments at La Scala, too. What were the great moments? The great moments were just seeing what we did. The, you know, you referenced the, the show of it. While we weren't showmen, there was a show going on every night. The formality of that, the, the working with family members seeing great food and great drink come to the table in this incredible place. 
What did your parents dress like? I'm really curious because you have a distinct sense of style. Did you pick that up from? My, I remember my father every waking moment wearing a jacket and tie. I think my father came out of the womb wearing a tie. I remember my grandfather always in suit. I think only when he went to Florida did he wear a, a golf shirt, so to speak. But very formal, I think, is how we conducted ourselves. You know, Toronto's a um, Protestant town. It's very formal. Emotions are not, we, we're not transparent in that way. You hold on to things. You hide shit. And I think it's a relatively formal city. If you wanted to have fun, you break out and you went to Montreal. Or Roman Catholics, after all. You could forgive your sins on the seventh day of the week. But um, it was a very formal, structured environment, which I grew up in. What about the taste of food for you? You said your dad was a good taster. What about what about you? I think I grew up in a classic 60s, 70s home. My mom, I thought, was the greatest cook on the planet Earth. She didn't push the envelope on tastes and flavors. It was all very straight ahead. But whatever she made was, for me, perfect. You know, I, I grew up in a household where, as far as I recall, garlic was never used, which seems anathema to an Italian family, but no garlic, because apparently my grandmother was allergic to it. Uh, not a lot of onions used, at least that I could see or tell. So the food was tasty as all hell, but in terms of ethnic cuisines, all of that didn't freaking happen you know uh, an incredible night out for me and my three brothers was to go to kentucky fried chicken that was like pushing the envelope on what the hell we ate but other than that even though we were in the restaurant business we absolutely never went to a thai restaurant never went to a japanese any of ethnicity outside in toronto was full of incredible communities we never ventured to those things were you the youngest brother or the i'm the second oldest and i have two younger brothers what are they like the two older brothers got into the business. My brother took a more formal route uh, going to school to learn. He worked with the Four Seasons hotel chain in Toronto, and then he was transferred to the States. He's still in New York now. Um, and my two younger brothers saw what the two older brothers went through and vowed never, ever, ever to do that. Did you try to get out at some point? Did you go to school? I think as a, um, in my early years at university, I certainly didn't want to work with my family. Nothing against restaurants per se, but why would you want to work with your family? And one might say that I practiced a lot of hospitality at the University of Toronto and was asked to leave. And my father, the day after, pulled me by the scruff of the neck into the restaurant and said, you're not going to lay about, you are going to work here. But does that mean you were like throwing parties and stuff? That is what that would mean at the yeah. University of Toronto. So yes. you were a popular guy, though. Uh, that completely different. Whether one is part, I, I threw parties. Whether one person showed up or a hundred and one, I didn't care. We were going to have a party. But they happened, and you, oh, they happened. So you were into like throwing a thing, doing a thing. I wanted to be a social cat, um, and I spent more time in the common areas at the University of Toronto than I did in the classrooms of the University of Toronto. I wanted to sit down with a cup of coffee and socialize, to meet, to talk, to learn, to God knows what was going to happen, develop relationships. I wanted to be, a, you know, I'll say a party planner, not for my life, but I loved planning parties. And uh, I had some great friends who were somewhat of the same mindset. And I took one entire year of my university career was essentially fixated upon throwing a party on Friday night. So it was Monday through Thursday planning 
It was Friday during the day, getting all the shit together that you needed. Friday night, putting on the party. Saturday, returning everything that you stole. Sunday, recovering and starting all over again. And I would dare say, maybe, just maybe going to one class a week for good measure. But that was the beginning of the end for me. You still talk to some of those guys from that time? Uh, unfortunately, not as often as I would like, but those relationships remain very special to me. What are those guys up to now? I mean, what are some of your... Well, I wasn't the only one kick ass to leave university. My, uh, my close friend was also, and I would say in relative terms, we've both amounted to something. Yeah. Yeah, I bet. Yeah, I mean, it kind of seems like that kind of that kind of attitude, like an entrepreneurial. Yeah, yeah, you know, we we had, our skill sets were received a modicum of benefit by going to university. We were able to do other things that opened up some doors, and um, we're both. Uh, I think all great business people are first and foremost great salespeople, and the art of the sale I learned primarily initially from my grandfather. And this mate of mine in university, his name is John Sebastiano. Damn it, could he sell? He could sell himself. And it didn't matter what industry he was going to get into, he was going to be a success. And I think we both, uh, we both learned a lot together working together at the university. Because if someone said to me, which one of these sommeliers here in New York or wine people here in New York could quote Homer or Virgil, I mean, you would be the first person that I would think would be the answer to that question. But it sounds like you weren't bookish at all. It sounds like you weren't really into I, it. I was book, I became even more bookish after the fact and I would have to say it was the world of wine that got me there. I should not have gone to university when I did. And I will advise my children that when they finish high school, I would literally beg them not to go to university immediately. That if there is time for a gap year when they can travel and figure out, I was 17 years old when I entered university and I was nowhere near ready to be there. And, but I fell back into it for a variety of reasons. And I loved every moment of it, but I went in completely undisciplined with no goal as to what I was going to do until I found hospitality, so to speak. And then it was about parties. It was about music. It was going to clubs. It was doing all of those things. And I had four years of that. It was awesome. But I learned more when I went to work with my family when I got the wine bug, well, let me rephrase that. The wine bug came at the same time that I realized that everything that I was ultimately interested in, history, religion, culture, civilization, geography, people, the culture of the table, oh my God, that's all in a goddamn bottle of grape juice. Well, maybe grape juice is where I should... De and so that's how it all started. But all of that was post-university. And where did that come together? What was the realization on that? Well, when I was kicked out of school in June of somewhere in the late 80s, I worked that summer at my family's restaurant. And then halfway through the summer, my father said, you're going to Italy. You're going to go to Italy for 28 days. You're going to spend two weeks in Tuscany, a week in Piedmont, and a week in the Veneto. These are the wineries you're going to visit. These are the restaurants you're going to see. And I was like, no freaking way am I going by myself. He's like, you're going. So I must admit, I went... Not entirely reluctantly, but with a modicum of, of fright. And when I got there, it was like the massive holy shit moment for me of all time. Because as I just said, all of these things that were sort of going on in my brain, these various passions and interests that whether they were present or, or whether they were overtly present to others or not, they were somewhere inside of me and they just needed to come out. And I saw it. 
the interactions with the people, whether it was a peasant farmer making grape juice, whether it was sitting down and breaking bread with Piero Antonori at his castle in Umbria back in 1988. It was seeing the history of Italy. It was all of these things came together. And when during the course of this thing, I felt this, this love developing. And when I got back at the end of that September, it was, I'm committed. I found my thing. This is it. Let's go. And it was those 28 days in Italy that set the the tone for all of the days to follow and still do today. Was that the trip where you met Giovanni Conterno from Giacomo? That is when I met Giovanni Conterno. I met quite a few people like him. And at the time, I knew he was good, but I thought a lot of them were good. That week in Piedmont, following the two weeks in Tuscany, I spent it with Gaia. And um, for me, Angelo was one of my heroes because of what he did to Barbaresco. So to spend a week living in um, a house just down the street from his winery, seeing him every day, meeting Aldo Vaca, who's another hero of mine. And small story, in that trip, I arrive in Piedmont on the Saturday. I go to dinner with Al, uh, with Angelo and his wife. The next day I wake up, I'm like, okay, I'm out of my church going days, but what the hell, I'm in Barbaresco, there's a big cathedral, a church at the end of the street, let's go there. Angelo said that we're going to do brunch afterwards. So I go to church, (laughs) feel somewhat holy, it's a good day. I show up at Angelo's at around 11 a.m. He's like, Paul, I hope you don't mind, but there's a guest coming. I'm like, cool, you know, it's your bloody place, I'm your guest too. And who the hell walks in? Burton frickin' Anderson. I'm like, oh my God, like Angelo Gaia. Burton Anderson, can I be any luckier than this? And I'm a firm believer in serendipity and that we do create our own. But in that moment, insane, insane. Two of the most influential people in the latter half of the 20th century in the world of wine. And here I am, this 21-year-old punk kid from Toronto. What am I doing here? What was he like? I remember him to be a, you know, an English gentleman, learned, but easygoing. I'm sure he's like, who the hell is this punk kid from Canada? Like, what's he doing at the table with Angelo Gaia? But it was all very convivial and fun and easygoing. And I learned, I learned to revere wine on that trip. At the same time, I learned that it's just grape juice. It is the drink of this country. It is, I don't mean it's just a peasant drink. It's more than that, certainly. But it's just grape juice. There's so many other things to be so serious about. And even with Angelo and Burton at the table, Mr. Anderson, please allow me to call you Burton, um, that it was easy. It wasn't so fraught with, you know, Mr. Anderson, blah, blah, blah. No, it's fucking easy. It should be easy. If we don't have a smile on, on your face, when you're drinking juice and breaking bread with people like that, with friends, with family, with strangers, something is wrong. And it was one of those things that I took away from that trip. And I would say the same thing about spending a week coming in and out with the Antonori family. You know, Piero is an easygoing dude, a very successful dude, you know, an aristocrat. But he's an easygoing dude. All people in the world of wine, to my uh, recollection and my interactions have been easygoing people. Another great reason for being in this industry. And you got a chance to meet Giacomo Bologna. Yeah, and again, serendipity for God's sakes. I, for, what, I forget what day of the week it was in my first trip. I'm with Angela. He's like, Paul, we're going to a party tonight. I'm like, 
oh, okay, are you sure it's cool that I go? He said, yeah, yeah, you're coming with, you know, you're my guest. I'm like, well, where are we going? Giacomo Bologna's birthday. Like, I had, I don't think I'd ever really heard of Giacomo Bologna. His wines, I don't think had come to Toronto at that point in the late 80s. So I go, it's big long table in the winery. Here I am, one of the few people in the room who can speak English. And here is this rather large, incredibly jovial man. And I got to party with him on his goddamn birthday. It was insane. Insane. He passed away shortly thereafter. At that, and also on that trip, maybe the, the trip the following year, Renato Ratti passed away. He, of all the people that I did not get to meet, Renato was the one who I wanted to interact with. I, I came upon Italy at a very lucky time. It had certainly been on the road of development in the 80s already, but I got to meet a lot of people. Bartolo Moscarello, for God's sakes. For me, he was a country winemaker. Like It, it was one of many producers of Barolo. To me, he wasn't capital B Bartolo Moscarello at that point. That would come in later years. But it was an insane trip, and those guys couldn't speak English. I couldn't even speak a goddamn lick of Italian. But oh, what visits I had. Unbelievable to me. What brought you to New York? It was the need to stretch my wings, to learn other things that I felt were going to be hard for me to learn in Toronto, to leave my family's restaurant, to go to another restaurant in Toronto, as big a city as Toronto is. The restaurant community was still very small, at least at the time. And I felt that it would really upset and offend my father to leave and go to some other place. So to come to New York was the thing. And I had previously been to New York on a restaurant trip with my father and my brother. And as soon as we came off the interstate and crossed the Madison Avenue Bridge onto Manhattan, where a lot of my peers at that time in the 80s had felt that, okay, well, I will become an adult when I get to Europe for the first time. For me, I had yet to go to Italy by this time. It was New York. New York is where I get to become an adult. And Maybe somewhere inside of me, it was a connection back to my grandpa because he was born in Hell's Kitchen before he moved to Canada as a two-year-old, but it just felt like home. It felt like the place that I needed to be. So when the opportunity came up in 1991, I seized it and went. And it was hard to leave my family, but I only looked up at the opportunities that might be here for me. I, I came here without a job. I knocked on the door of Felidia. I spoke to Lydia Bastianich, who our family knew from various restaurant events. She said, you know, if you come and work here, you're not going to learn anything new from compared to your place in Toronto. Why don't you go to a restaurant called Remy, Adam Tahani, Francesco Antonucci. You know, it's new, it's hot, it's doing well. There's a manager there, a GM named Chris Cannon. You know, you might learn something there. So I walk over. I walk in the door, it was between lunch and dinner, and uh, I saw a guy who I thought looked like the GM, sort of short, Napoleon-looking, wearing glasses. And I'm like, I'd like to apply for a job. He goes, for what? I said, a server. He goes, who are you? I'm Paul Greco, sir. He goes, Paul Greco, related to Charles Greco in Toronto? I said, yes, sir. He goes, any son of Charles Greco can have a job in my restaurant, and that was Chris Cannon. And... Um, so I got a job and started working almost immediately after I arrived in the city. What was Chris like at that time? <laughs> exactly like he is today. Um, dominant, 
domineering, intelligent as all shit, um, fully engaged, finger on every detail, smart as a fucking tack. I, I think there are, a few, at the time, few better restaurateurs than Chris Cannon. I worked there for two years, and I learned the business of wine. Not when you buy wine, I think of Chris the, more than anybody. I think Chris had a lot to teach. Has a lot to had a lot to teach. Has a lot to teach. I learned how to buy wine, not what wines to buy. I don't think Chris influenced my palate. I came there with a good knowledge of Italian wines, which was the uh, the mainstay of that wine list back in '91, certainly. But Chris taught me the business of wine. Emphasize the fact, you know, it's just grape juice. We're here to make money. This is a business. This is how you run a restaurant. And Chris was great at that. In addition to a focus on ser- an overt focus on service, it was a new type of service to me, less formal, but cool, and hospitality. He really took care of people in a Chris Cannon sort of way. Not a glad hander by any stretch. But Chris, really, he honed in on the details immediately. It was awesome. Was he a fast taster back then? Chris was able to make all decisions quickly. Um, I'm a fast taster now. I'm not so sure that that came about because of Chris. But yeah, he made all of his decisions quickly. And what was Remy like? It was insane. It was goddamn insane. Either 91 or 92, that joint was voted the best Italian restaurant in America. Are you kidding me? Maybe that was the Italian restaurant mafia at the time. I don't know what the hell was going on, but the food on the plate was good to pretty damn good. It was very tasty, eminently edible, but we weren't pushing any envelopes by any stretch. But Francesco created a system there that every day we did five lunches, seven dinners, Lunches we were doing 150 to 200 covers a day. Dinners we were doing 200 to 400 covers a night. We it was a machine, in the truest definition of a restaurant machine. But what came out on the plate was tasty as all hell. It was insane, insane. And what was New York like at that time for restaurants? What was it like in the early 90s? It was a smaller community, certainly. I think I got, I, I know we all got to see each other at tastings, coming into each other's restaurants. It was before things took off. It was before Food Television Network. It was before the Celebrity Chef. Everyone knew everyone, and everyone truly helped everyone out. It was, it was a perfect time to come in and learn the business for what was to start happening in the mid-90s. It's, the world seems so much smaller back then. And it was easier. The sense of competition was nowhere near as great as it is today. In a given month in 1991, if 25 restaurants opened up, maybe five to eight of them were worthy of you going to check out for whatever reason. But now if 25 restaurants open up, 20 of them are opened by good cooks, good operators. You, you want to go check? It's just, it's insane. I think back in 1991, all of us could survive. It was still tough. This business has always been hard, but I think it was easier to make a living, to do the right thing. Now, every day is a struggle. And when you first met Adam Tahani, what was that like? He's insane. He, talk about a showman. Um, you, you really had to learn 
to work with Adam because Adam just wasn't the designer of that restaurant. He was the owner of that restaurant. We had his celebrity clientele. He was very persnickety about certain things and you learn quite quickly how to make him happy. But it was, again, serendipity. Who is this punk kid from Toronto that gets to work with Chris Cannon, one of the best GMs in the business? Who is this punk kid from Toronto who gets to work in a restaurant owned by one of the world's preeminent restaurant architects? And who is this punk kid from Toronto who gets to work with one of America's great Italian chefs? It was insane. Insane. Some of the party. You know, I, I never focus on the guests that come in the door. It's not what I'm in this business for, per se, in terms of the celebrity quotient. But yeah, some of those people who came in the door because of Adam, it was ludicrous. You were in all the way in restaurants at that point, or were you still thinking you wanted to do something else? No, I was uh, a server at Remy for three months. Two months after I arrived in New York, I got a phone call from my family that my grandpa was on his um, deathbed that I should come home to Toronto. So I did. And we had a great conversation. He told me uh, three things. He said, uh, do not come back to Toronto, stay in New York, get married, and move to Queens. Now, we, we could never, we understood the first two. The move to Queens thing, none of us have been able to figure out in the uh, following years. Maybe back in his youth, Queens was aspirational from Hell's Kitchen, but it was what it was. And he died a month later and I went home for the funeral. And on my cab ride back from the airport to my apartment um, after his funeral, I stopped by Remy on the Sunday night to see my schedule for the following week see Chris and say, you know, once again, apologies that I had to leave, but you know why? And you know, what happened when I was away and lo and behold, they had fired one of the managers. I'm like, okay, so where are you going to get the replacement manager from? He looked at me, he knew my background. He said, why do you want to apply? And I said, well, I'll put my name in the hat, but it's New York city. There's no way in hell you'd hire this punk kid from Toronto. And Chris went to bat for me with Adam and Francesco. And How'd that make you feel? Chris is one of my closest friends. And when you're, when Chris Cannon's your friend, it is an awesome place to be. And uh, I had come to New York originally thinking that I would be here for three months and then go another place for three months and, and get experience stage elsewhere and then hopefully come back to Toronto to take over the family restaurant. And Francesco and Adam said to me, you cannot... If, you, if we're going to give you this job, you need to commit for a year. So I called my father and said, listen, dad, my time in New York is not going to be short. He said, you should take it. And that began what is now over 25 years in New York City. Were you doing wine at Remy or? No. no. Chris was the buyer. He made me do inventory, of course. Thank you, Chris Cannon. And I worked the floor as a manager. There were three managers running a restaurant, 150 seats, 12 meal periods, and we rocked it out. Like that restaurant today would seemingly have five or six managers, but three of us cranked that place out. It was insane. Again, a machine. I mean, when you look back at yourself, what do you think you learned at that point? It was all about business. And I would say then, and in my first job in the industry, which is at my family's restaurant in Toronto, I'm a restaurateur first. Wine is second to me. I'm a hospitality guy. I'm a service guy, first and foremost. And that is what Remy taught me a lot about. It taught me the business. It taught me the business in New York. 
It taught me how tough it is. It gave me some lessons in how to succeed. It allowed me the opportunity to meet a lot of incredible restaurateurs. And I love it for that. And you ended up working at Boulay for a while. <laughs> My glory, glory days at Boulay. Maybe David doesn't want me to you know, ever allow me to put it on my resume. But those 28 days at Boulay in August of 93 serve as probably the best lesson I ever learned about what not to do. And I take, uh, I don't discredit David at all what the food that came out, the whole thing was unbelievable to me. But it was another side of the business that I had no, talk. the formality of my restaurant in Toronto did not compare to the formality of David Boulay's restaurant. But what was completely different is how it was run from front of the house perspective. And to say it was machine-like does not do justice to it. It was, I don't even know the words or the phrases I would use. It was hell on earth to me. And those 28 days were, up until then, the worst days of my life. I worked longer, harder. I made more money than I'd ever made before then. But it was truly blood money. At one point, I checked myself into St. Vincent's Hospital because I was having a panic attack. I thought I was going to die. And the only job I've ever walked out of. And I would confess, I don't have a single iota of embarrassment for walking out of that joint. What did you do next? Then was on to Gotham Bar and Grill. And at the same time, I worked at a restaurant on the Upper West Side, I guess it would be called, called Gabriel's. And so I did double duty at those two restaurants. And then Chris Cannon reached out to me in early 1994 and said that he had left Remy and was going to open up a restaurant called Judson Grill with the team behind Gotham Bar and Grill. And would I come on and be his second in command? And I jumped at the chance to work with Chris again. But it, between Gotham and Boulay, you must have seen a sommelier because it doesn't sound like previously. Boulay never had uh, a som. Uh, Boulay had a manager, uh, the general manager who did all the wine buying, but all the captains on the floor sold wine. Remy never had a sommelier. Gotham Bar and Grill had Scott Carney, who was a master psalm at the time, but Scott was the, also the GM. Scott never worked the floor of Gotham. And at Gabriel's, there was no psalm also. So still, in all my experience in New York up to that point, I had never worked with a psalm. There was a beverage manager who also had other titles. And of the restaurants at the time who had psalms on the floor, other than the 21 Club... Other than Windows on the World, maybe Lutess, I'm hard-pressed to think of what other restaurants had a, an active psalm on the floor. Le Cirque didn't have a psalm on the floor in 1991-92, as far as I know. Did you ever miss having that experience? Did you ever think, ah, would have been nice? I was looking for broad experiences all around, and yes, I have never lost my love of wine, but again, I'm in the restaurant industry, and that's how I look at myself first and foremost. In my entire career, I have never been a psalm. Never. Never had the title. I've had the title of beverage director, but I never worked as a psalm on the floor of a restaurant. And that is because wine is but one part of a much greater experience. We all recognize that. And I did not want to potentially limit the things that I could get involved in. I'm a control freak for fuck's sakes. I think almost all of us in this industry are. And I wanted to control everything. Some of my fondest memories, I'll jump ahead to Gramercy Tavern when I was a captain there for two years. 
some of my most fondest memories of the restaurant business are those two years as a captain because I truly controlled every single element of your dining experience. And so it's not just about wine to me. It's not just about food or service or hospitality or music. or It's all of these things. And I did not want just to hone in on a wine vantage point of things. I certainly thought about that. I had various conversations with Roger DeGorn back in the early 90s when I thought, oh, maybe I should become a master psalm. And I realized, well, Paul, you've already had one academic uh, tryout and it failed miserably. So why would you venture along that path again? So I dabbled, let's say, but I early on recognized that what I did tableside, I didn't just want to be the guy who popped corks and served grape juice. I wanted to do more. What was that introduction to Gramercy Tavern like? I mean, how did that come along that you ended up there? Well, I worked with Chris at Judson Grill to December of 1994. I had a girlfriend back home in Toronto who thought I was coming home after three months. And here we are almost four years later. And she's like, what the frick? And so I said, okay, fine. Well, it was the right thing to do to say, okay, I'm moving back to Toronto. I, I've dallied about time to go back home. You don't have any official ties to New York yet. So I went home at Christmas. I quit Judson. I said, okay, to my family, to my girlfriend at the time, I'm going to go back to New York. I'm going to close up shop, all my connections, but I'm going to get a job for a few months, just make some cash and come back with a little bit of cash in my pocket to do whatever in Toronto. And when I returned to New York in the beginning of January, 95, I went to apply for a job at Gramercy Tavern, sat down with Danny and uh, Steve Olson, who was the uh, beverage director, service director. And Danny knew of me. Uh, Stephen knew of me. Um, and is that ominous? What does that mean? They knew of you. I mean, they knew you were a hardworking guy, or what? I, you know, I, I think they not that I had a reputation or anything like that. I, I, I made it a point when I was at Remy, especially that when a fellow restaurateur came in, I always followed up with a handwritten note. And on one of those nights at Remy Restaurant, Paul Bowles Bevan came in, GM of Union Square Cafe at the time. And I wrote him a personal note afterwards. And apparently, Danny told me this, Paul received that note, stuck it to the bulletin board at Union Square Cafe. And apparently he and Danny said to each other, one day we want to work with that guy. So that, if my memory serves, is how the interview with Danny began at Gramercy Tavern. Steve's reputation was one of, oh my God, like I'm going to work with the greatest sommelier in America. I remember he was time. in magazines. I remember oh, there he, were full page pictures of him in like wine and food magazines. Yeah. The, you know, celebrity chefs were certainly on their way up, but it already existed. There were no celebrity psalms, I think, but Steve was as close as we freaking got. Like he was one of the untouchables. Like this, talk about creative genius. All my God, he like had like a halo around his freaking head. Um, during the interview with Danny and Steve, they, of course, asked me, well, why don't you want to be a manager? Why are you applying just to be a server? And I hemmed and hawed, like, how do you correctly answer that to Danny? And he said, well, so you just don't want to care as much anymore. I'm like, oh, damn, like, you can't call me out like that. But I said, I guess you're right. I, I, I need some time away from manager. He said, cool, cool. We want to work together. So I got the job and I immediately started to have the time of my life and immediately called my girlfriend in Toronto and said, well, I guess I'm not going to come back to Toronto. Told my family the exact same thing. 
And there began the two most fun years of my restaurant career. I had a blast as a captain. It was an unbelievable time to be at GT. It was six months after the open. They had two stars, Tom Colicchio in the kitchen, um, Claudia Fleming in pastry, Danny Meyer owning the goddamn joint, Steve Olson as the beverage director, service director, like, holy shit, the team that they had hired to open that place, the captains, the fronts, the backs, the everything was just insane to me. The beauty of the place, the cover story in New York Magazine about America's next great, which had already passed like seven months sooner. And there was a lot of pressure, but there was a lot of fun. And the power that had been given to the service team was unbelievable to me up until that point, certainly with Chris and this control freakishness that he that he possessed, that I subsequently possessed, was now one of, wait a second, the managers don't actually run the floor of Gramercy Tavern. The captains run the floor. And this is pretty awesome. I loved it. And the control that we took over guest experience was incredible and encouraged by Danny. He gave us all the tools to do whatever is necessary to make the guest happy. And I reveled in that. I will confess, though, that three days after I started, Danny Meyer appeared at Family Meal and said, ladies and gentlemen, I just want to let you know today that Steve Olson is no longer employed at Gramercy Tavern. And it was one of those, you've got to be fucking kidding me. Like, with all due respect, Danny, my internal monologue, I didn't come here to work with you. I came here to work with Steve Olson. And you've just fired him? Like, and I turned to the woman to my right, who happened to be Steve's girlfriend at the time. I'm like, Megan, you've got, like, really? And so it was like, okay, well, now what do I do? And I stuck it out, and I still continued to have a good time. I, the gentleman who followed up from Steve, a gentleman by the name of Bob Wenzel, carried on Steve's program. But the service and the hospitality was exactly the same, and I quickly realized this was a great place for me to be. I wanted to become a, I thought I had dreams of being a rock star at the time, so I bought a guitar and learned to play guitar. Never really happened, so. And it took about two years to get the zest and the energy back to say, so this restaurant industry is what I want to make of my life. But those two years of GT, holy smokies. Awesome. So two things about that. One, when Danny said, so you don't want to be a manager, do you think that he was looking at you as a potential replacement for Steve already? Absolutely not. And then two, when I hear you speak, the way you enunciate, I hear Steve. I hear the way Steve Olson speaks. Well, considering I really only got to work with Steve for three days, and not even that because my three days with Steve were a... Thursday, Friday, Saturday, Sunday, and Mr. Olson, I'm pretty sure, did not work that Sunday night. So I, I barely had any time with Steve. But I would say that my enunciation comes from Mrs. Bell in grade four and Brother Donald, Christian Brothers, shout out, in grade six. May you burn an everlasting hellfire, Brother Donald. Just saying. Anyway, so... <laughs> yes, Canadians speak the Queen's English, apparently we do. Back to GT. Who else was there? I would say it was an all-star team of captains at the time and more that would come in. Chris Russell is someone who I remember well from those days. Sean Fry. You know, we, we were still on the 
the beginning of the GT train. They had opened up in July of 1994. They were delayed. So it was a three-week training process. And what Danny and crew taught those guys was they knew everything. They knew the name of the people who delivered the linen on a daily basis. They knew everything about everything. And I was intimidated as all shit, but I had a blast. And it was intense as all hell, as I've said. And as much as I've said Boulay was intense, it was a completely different type of intensity and it was an, an intensity that you, the employee, could thrive. It was not one of intimidation. And nothing in this restaurant industry should be about intimidation. And how many of us as managers back then operated in that manner? I will confess I certainly did. Me too. But there's no reason for it. And I think one of the many things that Danny has shown us is that intimidation gets you nowhere. So that empowerment of the team on the floor is one of Danny's many, many great traits. So, you know, then it was Chris Russell and then a bunch of other guys. Robert Bohr came in, Richard Lofty came in. There's so many people who would subsequently go on, like I did, to open up their own restaurant or manage other people's or do all of these things. Not to mention you had, I didn't know the names of all the people in the kitchen, but there was Tom Caligio, for God's sakes. And up until then... I, I had never had food like Tom Clickio's food. The purity, the simplicity of the flavors was just insane. There was Claudia Fleming and pastry making desserts to make my head ring, for God's sakes. Just incredible combinations, a savory element going on. There was the wine program that Stephen had started, influenced by Danny, of course, but that others, Bob Wenzel and then Cliff Batuello, had carried on still with thoughts and threads back to what Stephen had put together in terms of, I don't think that program pushed the envelope on anything in terms of the number of selections. Maybe there were some flavors going on on that wine list, so to speak, in terms of appellations or grape varieties that you wouldn't see everywhere, but it was, there were conversational points and they extended to the before dinner beverage program, the after dinner beverage program, all the spirits, all of these things, the designer Peter Bentel, the flowers of Roberta Ben David, the art of the, everything about that goddamn place. It, when I when I walked in that door every day for work, I felt like I was at home, almost more at home than I did in my apartment. When did Nick Matone come into the picture? Nick came in, I think, in nineteen ninety six. Yeah, nineteen ninety six, midway late through that year. They had Danny had. After letting Stephen Olson go, he then fired his GM and all of us looked at each other going, holy shit, talk about job insecurity. This place is insane. But I recognized Nick as soon as he came in because I had worked with him at Gotham Bar and Grill where he was a manager and I was happy to see him. I always respected Nick. For me, he and Chris Cannon are two of the great managers I've ever worked under and with. And um, when Nick came aboard, thereby began my refocus, reinterest in potentially the restaurant industry being a career choice for me. That's what brought you back. It was, you know, Nick. Maybe I, I have to believe. Of course, he had other. He had conversations with Tom and Danny. They, they needed managers. Nick would come and talk to me. Hey, Paul, this position is open up. Are you? They'd be like, no, 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 not ready, not interested, whatever. Still want to be a rock star, of course. Still think there's a possibility there. But Nick came to me at the right moment in time and said, hey, Paul, what about this? And I said, okay, but I want more. 
I don't just want to be the beverage director, which is what they came to me with initially. I want to be the service director too. I want both titles because to me, they go hand in hand. I want control of the floor and I love beverage. Okay, let's rock it out. So when I became a manager of Gramercy Tavern in 1997, it was as beverage director, service director, and assistant general manager. And what was that change like for you? It was no change at all. I had my final shift as a captain on the floor on a Sunday night. And on that Monday, less than 24 hours later, I showed up in my suit and tie. Not much of a change for me. I think for my peers, who one day I was your mate, and now I'm your boss, one of your bosses, they, <laughs> I, I think they were all happy for me. I think they were all like, oh, this is going to be insane. And I confessed to them on that first day. I said, listen, I've committed, and I did commit, every sin that you could possibly commit as a FOH at Gramercy Tavern. I know everything here that you can do wrong. You're not allowed to do it going forward. So, you know, I don't want to say I put the hammer down because that's, that's not the word or the phrase or the attitude you take in a Danny Meyer restaurant, but I, I was given that freedom and that flexibility to still work with one of the greatest front of the house teams ever assembled. And it was awesome. Challenging, no doubt, because you know, especially for me now managing people that I worked alongside, that transition is hard as shit. But, but I struggled through it for about a day and a half, and then I started to thrive in it. What was the service like there? I mean, how many people would come in, and what did it feel like? I thought we worked our asses off every day on service and hospitality. No, nothing was ever taken for granted. One of my fondest memories, um, we were having trouble with our wine buckets, keeping the wine napkins on the wine buckets. You would set the room up for 5.30 opening and there would be all of the wine buckets around the restaurant with the wine napkins nicely draped across. And by six o'clock, they had disappeared. They had disappeared into someone's pocket. They had disappeared into the ice. God knows where the fuck they went. So it was like, and then when you went to get wine, you didn't have a fucking wine napkin. It's like, Jesus Christ, how can we not manage this? So one day at Family Meal, I stood up and I had written an epic poem called Ode to a Wine Napkin. So I, I say that to shine light upon the fact that whatever was going on service-wise, we were allowed and encouraged by all means necessary to make it better, to correct it, to do whatever. And all of us together as a team had a focus on these things. And when that happens, the ship only moves in one direction. Do you think Danny was under a lot of pressure? I mean, this was his second restaurant. It had gotten two stars. At one point, there was that piece, I don't remember exactly when it came out, about the person asked for a special request and the server says, have you heard of our chef? That, that kind of thing. Do you think Danny was under pressure to really deliver on that early press? I think Danny certainly didn't show that he was under pressure pressure i think the most pressure came when that new york magazine article appeared before the opening that's you know with four stars emblazoned across it with the tagline is this america's next great four-star restaurant like god damn it like can you just chill out for a few moments and let me open the goddamn door and then they only got two stars in the initial times review and as at least tom colicchio said they only deserve two stars in that initial review i think a lot of people wished for the failure of that restaurant that danny was still viewed as this wonder kid 
as a, you know, when his mid twenties, he opened up Union Square Cafe in 1985. And now in 1994, still under 40 years of age, he's opening up his second restaurant, but it's supposed to be America's next. Like, who is this goddamn guy? So yes, I assume for him, there was no pressure, but Danny and Tom and crew never put that upon us. They said, go have at it. Take care of your guests, understand their expectations, and exceed expectations. So I never, ever felt from on high a pressure to do better. We wanted to do better. That's how we went into service every single night, I swear to God. What about the wine side? I mean, what was it like running that program? It it was scary at first. I think when you're given your first program to run, you're like, holy shit, like, how do I how do I actually buy? How do I order? How many cases should I order? All of like what happens if I fuck up? What happens if I buy a wine that on Tuesday tastes tasted good, on Thursday it arrives and now I don't fucking like it? Like what what do you do? But the beauty of that program, again, whatever I did at Gramercy Tavern was to follow up on what Steve Olson created and I was the fourth in line and I only felt that I was you know, I had a thread tied back to Stephen and that I was only doing what he would have done. And he liked Riesling. Stephen liked aromatic white wines. I think at the time in the mid to late 90s, all Psalms would probably say then, have said then that they loved Riesling. We all loved acidity. And maybe where I took the program was really pushing the boundaries on grapes and areas of production that others may have felt, I don't know, not wholly comfortable bringing in. Why would you pour something from the Jura by the glass? You know, I remember buying uh, my first Poufinet wine back in 98, 99, uh, and my Rosenthal rep said, you're buying three cases. Are you going to pour this by the glass? And I'm like, yeah. Like, you're going to pour Pulsard by the glass? Yeah, what, was there a problem with that? Like, I never, Danny never, you know, when I was a server, he never put a box around us. And I never felt that when I took over the wine program. I could do whatever I want. And I never, therefore, felt that I was pushing any boundary. I just bought wine that I liked, that I knew, that I then had to convince the staff to like. I hate the word esoteric. But maybe people back then looked at the GT list and said, oh, that's an esoteric list. I never felt it as such. You know, if if we were unfamiliar with Jura wines, shame on us. But I think in the Jura, this is what they drink all the fucking time. So it's not fucking esoterica, dude. It's grape juice, period, amen. And so I, in addition, I think I pushed the number of selections, though that was not an overt goal. And ultimately, when I left in 2002, the extreme number of Rieslings Gramercy Tavern possessed, some might say, though I thought it was quite the righteous thing to do, um, was where Riesling was at that time following up on the great vintage of a one, um, that you had to do this. And if there was ever a place that would give proper respect to this grape, the GT was going to be it. Um, My final parting, I'll say final parting gift to Danny, though I don't mean it that way, is that I left with a purchase order of $31,000 worth of German wine, German and Austrian wine, primarily Riesling, to land upon Gramercy's doorstep. And uh, I can't say they were happy about it. I think Juliet loved a lot of the things and subsequently served a lot of the things that I bought. But um, 
it was what it was. What about Italy? I mean, Luftig became an Italian specialist. Robert Bohr worked at Babo and Lupa. You had been to Italy at a crucial time. Well, I, I mean, think D- Danny is an Italophile. That that was Union Square Cafe. That is Union Square Cafe. And he had his favorites. And we always, he never really told me that the list had to be 40% Italian. There was never that. We had categories established. Some categories were by grapes. Some were by style. And as long as I filled in those gaps, Danny was a great wine director himself in that he wanted things that the public would recognize and order. It didn't, we never bought Mondavi. And Danny's mindset with that was, it hasn't, not that we're saying anything against Mondavi, we love Mondavi, but Mondavi on a GT list does not make GT a destination. So we're still going to have Napa Valley Cab, but maybe we do Opus from Mondavi. So there was always something, and I applaud that, Danny. That's not, that's certainly not how I have come to operate my joints, but that was, those were the parameters that Danny gave me, that everyone's going to find something they like on this list from a price point, from a style point, from a geographic standpoint, all of those things cover the world of wine. And it was great. That freedom was incredible to me. I had roughly eighty dollars to $100,000 a month to spend on wine. We had a $500,000 seller real estate-wise. I had a huge seller to fill every bloody month. It was insane. Insane. But do you think that coming from the Italian perspective, coming up in Italian restaurants in a French-dominated town for fine dining still made you more open to the idea of esoteric wine because so many grape varieties that are associated with Italy are little-known grape varieties? You know, as I think about Italy, which was my first area of, um, I don't want to say expertise, area of interest, was a great way to learn the world of wine. Most of my peers had come up through the French world, which, while there's a lot, it's relatively easy. Italy, through the 80s, was, you know, crazy town for fuck's sakes. Not just the DOCs and the DOCGs, but all of the vino de tavola and the blah, blah, blah going on. How could you, like it was, you would spend a day learning all the wines ending in AIA, for God's sakes, and, and trying to remember all of the blends and the holy shit going on, the discovery of not just new grapes, and but regions, forget producers, blah, blah. It was insane. So maybe a love of an interest that became a love of that allowed me to be much more comfortable with pursuing areas that were out of the norm, varieties that were not fully appreciated. I was not a Francophile at heart, and still I'm trying to make up for that today. I'm, I'm hopefully becoming a Francophile, at least in my wine taste. But it, in terms of Danny, I never counted any of that stuff. I have no clue if the list was Italian heavy. It must have been nice handling that many kind of sales. Because, I mean, when you're selling stuff and you're a salesman, that's fun. The luxury of that, I, you know, it's a goal. To say that you can buy whatever you want, I think a lot of us who actually pull the trigger on buying wines like to make that statement. I don't think it really ever happens. And I could truly at the time buy whatever the hell I wanted. Unbelievable to me. So as my first wine buying job, I didn't think there was a better wine buying job on the planet Earth. And you won the James Beard Award for Outstanding Wine Service and for First Service. Well, let's say Gramercy Tavern won. Gramercy Tavern won the award in 2001 for Best Service, which was awesome. And that was an award for the entire restaurant. If I was the beverage director, so okay, I'll take some credit. But well, was the service entire service director. Okay, right? so I'll take some credit. 
And then in 2002, it won for best wine service and as the wine director, okay. But, you know, that, that was GT. That was a whole bunch of players. And one thing we did, we never, again, had a psalm on the floor of that restaurant. We educated the entire staff to be their own psalms. So if there were six captains, nine fronts, bartenders, all of that, any given service, there were 15 psalms on the floor of Gramercy Tavern. So we were all doing wine service. The award had to be given to someone, and I'm the guy who walked up on stage. What did that education program look like? I mean, when you sat down with the staff to tell them, what did you do? Every day at family meal, a bottle of wine was open. Every day at dinner, there were anywhere from 25 to 30 people in front of you, everyone tasting wine, talking about wine. There were no limitations on what I could open. The level of conversation amongst the staff before, during, and after service about wine was rampant. Everyone was interested in the stuff. Everyone was looking for, what can I do with my table that night that that person over there is not doing? Like, can I do a cock, an all cocktail tasting menu? Can I do an all sherry tasting menu? Can I do an all Riesling? Whatever it was, we had that number of beverages open in front of us to play with. So there was this ever upward movement and an internal comp, uh, competition, not overt, I would say, and not everyone had to participate. No one put this down upon you. But this is how we acted towards each other. It was awesome. And even when I was in a managerial role, it was an easy group of people to inspire. You know, once a month we did a master class and I could open up whatever we wanted to. So one year it was all Burgundy, one year it was all Bordeaux, one year it was all Italy, et cetera, et cetera. Education is paramount in the Danny Meyer world. And he would spend thousands of dollars every month on educating the staff. So how did you meet Marco Canor? Marco and I actually worked together at Gramercy Tavern. He was a sous chef. I was in my managerial role. He st I started in January of 95. He started in 1996, I believe in July, and was a cook, worked around the line, and eventually became a sous chef. Um, I, I can't say, not that there was a separation of back of the house and front of the house, but there wasn't a lot of interaction either. So it wasn't as if Marco and I were best friends and you know planted seeds and plotted one day working together. It wasn't that way at all. But in we knew that Tom was planning his own restaurant at the time and that he was going to take some people with him. And he ended up taking Marco Canor to be his chef de cuisine at Kraft. And I was stoked for Marco. And um, at the same time, Marco and his mom had a restaurant in Martha's Vineyard, which um, he asked me one year, well, maybe two years, to do the wine list for, which I was happy to do for him. So I got to know him a little bit that way. And then how did it come together that you and Marco started a restaurant? Well, I left Gramercy Tavern in October of 2002. Not only had my love of the industry been rekindled when I went back into management at Gramercy Tavern, but I had found an uber love for wanting to do my own joint. And the time was right. Stupidly or not, I resigned from Gramercy Tavern with no net. I didn't have an investor. I didn't have a space. didn't have a chef. Had nothing. But I knew that if I was going to do this, I had to have free fall. I had to have no safety net below me other than 
On Tuesday is your final day, October 1st, 2002. Well, on October 2nd, Wednesday, you now hit the streets, you find the joint, you ra- like all of these things. And it was awesome. Awesome. And it was my wife then. Uh, we had married in March of 2001, and she were, we met at Gramercy Tavern. She was one of the people that Tom took with him to craft. She was the general manager. Marco was the chef de cuisine. And it was my wife who had the conversations with Marco about his love of his wish to open his own joint. And Katie also knew about my desire to do the same. And she's the one who put us together. So thereby began the conversations with Marco. And my final day at GT was on a Tuesday. And on Thursday with Marco, I went to a space that would ultimately become Arth Restaurant in November of 2003. What was important to you at that time? I mean, what did you think you wanted to get done? I love to talk. I love conversing with people and the conversations that are had as you go along a path to open up your own joint are numerable, innumerable maybe. And as Danny once told me that in opening a restaurant, the control you get to exercise is unbelievable. You open up a restaurant, you dictate the food, the beverage, the type of service, the people who serve you, the hospitality, but the music the design, the architecture, the all of these things. What other industry allows you this number of areas to flex your muscles? It's insane. So I guess I wanted to have as many conversations as I possibly can. And it's not when I left Gramercy Tavern that I had a vision for the type of restaurant. I had a vision for how I wanted the restaurant to feel. And from Gramercy Tavern, I took away the fact that, well, if you took the tavern and the main dining room, they had a date and a baby subsequently came, what would that look like? And with Marco, we agreed on that. Hopefully that baby looks like Hearth. And ultimately it's up to us whether we achieve that or not. But that was the goal. So in 2002 into 2003, Marco was still working at Kraft. It was an entire year that I had off before Hearth opened, which allowed me to do you know, I did a little consulting in Las Vegas. My wife and I had our first child, so I got to spend six months home with her. But it was it was an awesome time for me. And just to hang out in this empty space that would become Hearth was pretty awesome too. The money raise, everything about that time was incredible for me. And I would say that to have opened a restaurant, to all you aspiring restaurant openers out there, does not mean that you have had to open one previously. To open a restaurant, one, be fully capitalized, Two, begin with a kernel of an idea and that everything you do within that joint can be tied back to that idea with the thread. And three, and maybe most importantly, you are organized. If you can do those three things, whether you've opened a joint before or not, you can open your own restaurant. Had you had no safety net before and it worked out for you? Was there a time in your life where you put yourself in that position and it really paid off? No, I'd, uh, I'd put myself in other challenging moments, but none like that. I walked away from an income. It's not like they gave me a severance. I walked away and got my last paycheck and done. Okay, now, you know, I have a wife, I have an apartment, I've got a kid on the way, how am I going to earn cake? But I felt that it was all going to work out. And again, serendipity came through with some consulting jobs here and there and things like that, raising money, you know, all of those things worked out at the end. I'm a firm believer in luck comes to those people who make the luck for themselves. 
So you have a kid. It's your first kid. Did that light a fire under your ass? I mean, here's a situation where you grew up with Having a child lights a fire under your ass. Not about, oh my God, I have to have a job to support this child. Just having a child lights a fire under your ass because it's not about you anymore. Now you have ultimate responsibility for someone else. Period. Now what? That's the fire. You think it made you a better boss? No. And not saying that I was already a good boss or a great boss. I found uh, many reference points in being a parent and in managing people. Whether you're managing, I assume, because I've never worked in any other industry, I, do, I, I assume management of people is management of people and is by far the toughest job there is. Oh, to just be a wine buyer where you're buying bottles and sticking them in a room and then bringing up and opening at a table. Like that's nothing. Managing people is the hardest job. It's a job that I love above all other jobs. And its similarity to being a parent is awesome. Sometimes I parent my children as if I'm managing the restaurant. And sometimes I manage the restaurant as if I'm parenting my children. Growing up in the business, I I never separated the two. They were always, you know, family was business. And I've never, in my entire career, whether I was working for myself or working for other people, I never felt like I was punching a clock. I, I, I happen to love what I do, so I don't look at what I do as work. So it's not that I get home on late on a Friday night after five days of work and say, holy shit, Paul, you just worked 70 hours this week and you didn't see your kids or your family. No, I, okay, I'm, I'm home, it's now the weekend, and there we go. I, I grew up in a household where I never saw my father Monday through Friday. I saw him on Saturday because I actually went to, my brother and I went to the restaurant and worked at the restaurant. We set tables, vacuumed, did all of that shit. And I saw him on the Sunday, but that's what you know. And I I don't have anything to make up for. I had a great childhood. I love my parents. I got to work with them, you know, eventually. And being in the restaurant business is about a lot of things. One of which is the culture of the table. And that's what I try to bring to my family, the importance of children, that it's not about how quickly can you get back to the TV or how quickly can you play your little video game or whatever the fuck it is. It's about the table, the culture of the table, conversing, blah, blah, blah. So early 90s, you're at Remy and the city doesn't have that many fine dining restaurants and it's the start of something different. Fast forward to opening Hearth, what's going on restaurant-wise in the city? How had the scene changed? The scene had changed insofar as you could seemingly open up anywhere and people would travel for good food, good drink, that anything was possible at that time, that consumers had a bigger focus, which has gotten even bigger today, on food, on drink, on the quality of food, on the quality of drink that with good food and drink, they would travel anywhere, that you weren't limited to this tenderloin section of Manhattan where all of the great restaurants, the fine restaurants used to be, you could push to the boundaries. So Marco and I deciding that Hearth should be at 1st and 12th, we never questioned that. We thought it was a great location. Others thought, you guys must be out of your freaking minds. But you know, shortly after, around that same time that we were doing Hearth there, the meatpacking district became a place that not a lot of people felt comfortable going to, to all of a sudden becoming this hot and trendy area. And, and we know what happened to New York City post-2003 in terms of where things are at and all of that. But 2003 was a great time for Marco and I and a great time for restaurants. Shortly after 
we opened, David Chang opened Momofuku just down the street. And so you saw this change going on in the East Village. You certainly never called the East Village Alphabet City in the early O's. And now the whole thing was the East Village. Gentrification was taking over, blah, blah, blah. But the industry was an exciting time. Anything was possible. Do you feel there had been a reset after 9-11? I mean, had it allowed younger restaurateurs like you to find a niche? Had something changed? Maybe, just maybe people said, well, if I'm going to die tomorrow, so to speak, balls to the walls. I'm going to do something today as a, as a couple. We're going to have children and we're going to stay in the city where we might have moved out. We're going to stay in New York City and be proud to be in New York City. Everyone said, fucking my dreams, they are going to happen and I'm going to make them happen. Maybe that was an outcome of 9-11. I don't know. I'm not that intelligent to say something so grand as that. But for me, we were just back to normal. And so business as normal was, you open up a restaurant in New York City. And who were some of the first people you hired? I asked if two of my former captains at Gramercy would come and be managers. Uh, Gramercy Tavern was cool with that. So that allowed me to have a thread back to the, the mothership, uh, so to speak, Gramercy Tavern. Marco took you know some of the people that he had worked with at Gramercy Tavern and Craft. And then it was just an open call. Well, I loved to hire. I wanted a brand new ship of state. I don't think a lot of the GT people wanted to come and work with me. And to be honest, I wanted them to stay because I'm opening a restaurant for the first time. I had no clue if this thing was going to be successful. So, you know, let me get a brand new group of people who have no clue about me that I can train and do it in the hearth way, which to be honest was the GT way, but I wanted a new palette from which to work. And what did you look for in those people that you hired? As Danny would say, and you know, our, our welcome manual was lifted right from Gramercy Tavern. Danny has written so many books about how we should do things. And with his blessing, I just took that, inserted hearth where our Gramercy Tavern had been written, and it became our manual. And so when I hired a GT, is exactly the same way I hired at hearth. You hire for hospitality, you train for service. When we have a conversation, if you look me in the eye, an interview is over within two minutes if you have not looked me in the eye. You know, the, the question that I ask, easiest question, I'm amazed still today at how people fumble over an answer. Describe to me the difference between service and hospitality. Not that they confuse the two, but how sort of ill-spoken people are in defining exactly what service is and defining exactly what hospitality. And I think with everything that we've heard and seen and learned over these years, that I would think a lot more people would be cognizant of the importance, the, the greatest importance that hospitality brings to the table. So stepping away from this industry for a moment, and I'm always guffawing when I read that a business here or a business there, that management has decided that they're going to focus, start focusing on the staff, on the employees, because they need to revive. Like, really? It took you that fucking long to know that? Like, Danny has done a lot of things, but that's always been the focus from day one. Like, why is this so revolutionary today? But it is. So I, we didn't recreate any wheel at Hearth, Marco and I, and the same type of person that I would have hired at GT, I would have hired at Hearth, and I looked for the exact same things. But it seems like you did something a little different on the beverage side in that you, at least at the beginning, you really wanted to do a seasonal list. You know, when when you get your own joint, and, and while, as I've already stated, my 
parameters for the beverage program at Gramercy Tavern were rather loose, let's say, there was still an envelope. It was still Danny's restaurant and Tom's restaurant. But now that I've got my own joint, fucking A, like floodgates, whatever that meant. So I knew I didn't have the money to spend. I had now a $25,000 budget a month versus $100,000. I didn't have the real estate as in the size of a cellar. I had a very small room to fill with wine, not the space at Gramercy Tavern. Most importantly, the thought process was, well, a wine list. What exactly is a wine list? Well, it's a list of wines. And that bored the fucking crap out of me. I didn't want a list of wines because they didn't tell the story of wines. So the presentation of the list, I wanted to become one of a storybook and less a list of wines. In terms of the actual wines that I chose, I would like to think they were exactly the types of wines and producers or grapes or whatever the hell they are that I would have bought previously at Gramercy Tavern. But it was a more edited list Um, at the same time that I was thinking those things and using GT as a guiding light, I also thought of Pierre Garnier from a trip I took to Paris, um, with my girlfriend at the time, then my wife, where he had relocated his restaurant to Paris, got the three stars from Michelin again, and he had maybe a hundred wines on his list. And the critics were disparaging him for that saying, if you have a three-star Michelin restaurant, how can you have this small a wine list? It should be big and massive and blah. And he said, no. I've tasted every single one of these wines and these wines work perfectly with my food at this moment in time. So I like, ah, so we can have a small list that is still poignant, that still tells a story. And I think in the mid nineties or so where the rise of the, the wine spectator grand awards where people were going for size, like it was, the, and then that sort of got revived in the early O's and mid O's again. And I, I never caught that bug. I was always frustrated admittedly when I think about the Wine Spectator and those awards that, you know, why am I just getting an award of fucking excellence? My list is not an award of excellence list. At least you you have to have some allocation for a small list. And I think it's unfair of you, whether you're the publisher of a wine journal or um, a guest or any of these things, that size matters. Size doesn't fucking matter at all. Does the wine I order go with the food I'm eating? Because It's not all about the wine. Wine makes food taste better, period. So whether you have 10 wines or 110 wines or 1,010 should still be the same. And another lesson I learned from Danny, it was all about the wine by the glass program. That's where I spent the majority of my energies. And in my day, the program had maybe 20 wines by the glass, maybe 20. And that's where all the heavy lifting was done. So I'm like, and he wanted that tw- those 20 wines to be reflective of the broader list. So I've always had this mindset about the programs that, you know, I've had an influence in and the one that I was able to run overtly at Hearth, that small list, small list matters. Small list can be important. Danny taught me that. Here we go. Let's go. But there's an underlying ambition when I hear you talk about that time, because, you know, a lot of people starting up a corner place in the East Village might not have been thinking Pierre Gagnard. They might have been thinking, let's do a diner. Let's make some money. Let's make burgers. Let's make hot dogs. Who who knows where influence lies? And the great thing about New York is, you know, you you can do anything you want, wherever you want to do it. So I'm not saying it was easy for Marco and I. We, We certainly worked our asses off. We struggled. And 
No one was breaking the door down on day one. We did all we did all right to well on our first year, but it, we struggled through a lot of years there. Um, we thought we were doing great things. Of course, you think you're doing great things, but you know at that time the industry everything was developing in a lot of different places, and our hope, our goal was that the East Village would take off, and it did for some, Mr. Chang, um, and I think. You know, for Marco Canora, who's still there with Hearth, I think his day is going to come where he will finally get the recognition that he so rightly deserves for the food that he's putting on the plate that I unfortunately could not help him get. What's he like as a person? Marco is demanding, as every great chef is. Most importantly, he has a point of view, he has a palate, he knows exactly what to put on a plate. And maybe there's too many most importantly's here for Marco, but his sense of balance, his sense of what matters, his sense of nothing extraneous is pristine to me. And certainly, you know, when I say one of the greatest chefs I've ever worked with, the other one would be Tom Colicchio, period. Well, when you say point of view, first off, that reminds me of you, right? I mean, you're one of those people that I think couldn't do it without a point of view. You would just be like, no, I'm not interested in this. I think, you know, Marco's point of view can sometimes get lost in world where, certainly more with food, absolutely more with food than with beverage, bells and whistles matter to too many people. And not that everyone's looking for height or width or smoke or God knows what else could come out in a plate. No, that's not the case. But Marco's flavors are very pure. And maybe also subtle, maybe too subtle. There's a simplicity about his cooking that can easily be overlooked. But as we all would recognize, simplicity is really fucking hard to achieve. When I think of cocktails, why is the martini so goddamn great? It only has two ingredients. Why is a Manhattan so great? Why is a Negroni so great? Three, like, why do we need five, eight, ten, whatever it is to make? No, less is more. And Marco practices that absolutely. And at times it gets overlooked. And hopefully everything is truly cyclical and it will come back around to that. Because the review was always thought to be... In January of 2004, the situation at the Times was an interim reviewer. And so, you know, you know, listen, we did not, I did not open that restaurant to be a three-star. In all the conversations we had, we wanted to be a great two-star restaurant. And then you get your review and you get two stars. It was not a perfect review by any stretch, but it was a good to pretty damn good. And then all of a sudden there's disappointment. Like, what the fuck? This was supposed to be a two-star restaurant and now, like, you wanted, like, no, let, this is exactly what we wanted it to be, period. But over time, when you see, I, I loved reading Frank Bruni's stuff. And I think Frank Bruni, uh, intelligent, so many different things. But there were times where he did a disservice to our industry in the reviews that were put out and the stars that were given. And I'm not going to begrudge anyone what they got. More power to you for that. 
But, and I think we all look at each other and say, well, if that restaurant got three stars, how am I not three stars? Or, or however you want to play that thing. And for better, for worse, and we do it even more now, we try to narrow things down to be as simple as they possibly can. I think simplicity on the plate, genius. Other things need not be so simple. Why do you define or characterize a restaurant by two or three or four stars? But we do. And I get it, but that is sometimes, sometimes, damn it, a lot of times for a lot of operators, an albatross that you can never, ever get out from under. And with, listen, we spent a million dollars to open up that joint. Our heart and souls went into that place. So when you get a review that you don't think is reflective, you know, there was a time when you were you could work things out. Whether the reviewer gave you time to work it out or the public gave you time or whatever, you could survive. Back after Hearth opened, bad review, you were toast. You were going to be toast within months, if not one or two years. The industry now is so pressure packed. It's a pressure cooker out there that why we all do this, I have no freaking clue. We're entering for me the hardest year that I've ever, ever seen. And we're only 11 days into 2016. But I remember when we did this interview as a video interview, you were really convinced at the time that the terroir model was going to be the model, not just for New York, but for like the country. You were going to roll out, you know, a lot of them. You're really happy about this idea of this is the model that can work in this economy of the time. Yeah, listen, timing is everything and so many different things in life. And post-2008, um, slowdown in the economy, maybe crash of the economy. You know, terroir just opened in March of 2008. And I never, truly, I never had any goals to open up a wine bar. The space became available. The landlord knocked on our door and said, hey, what do you guys think? And we look at it. Initially, the space was three times the size. We're like, nah, we can't do this. And then he came back three months later and says, okay, it's now a third the size. I'm like, oh, shit. Okay, we look at it. What's the rent? Okay, it's very affordable. Well, what can we do here? Yes, it's only 50 paces away from Hearth. Well, let's just do a wine bar. And it and it really was no greater a conversation than that. And I never held this long, this long-held belief that I could do a wine bar. So it happened. And the food was unbelievable. I look at what terroir was as the third generation of the wine bar in New York City, that Soho wine bar and kitchen, which I remember from the 80s or into the early 90s with the long, big horseshoe-shaped bar and the Cruvenet down the middle with 100, like that was number one. And then came Veloce in the late 90s. That was like, I think to a lot of aspiring restaurateurs, that opened our eyes to what you could do that in a small space with minimal amount of money, you could still open up a fucking restaurant. How cool is that? And then, so when we did Terroir in 2008, and there were a few other joints like ours that opened, all of a sudden the wine bar had gone, gone up a notch in terms of the level of cooking, the complexity of cooking that we would do. When we opened that place, I never thought it would be reviewed by the New York Times. And lo and behold, Bruni fucking reviewed it. He gave Terroir one star. Like, oh my God, are you fucking kidding me? And I think that set things off. Like, so this wine bar world can be, we're not just going to serve wine. We're going to have great food too. And so, yes, I did absolutely think then that the Terroir model was a model for the future. I still do today, but Terroir has changed and still needs to change even more to 
be a bigger part of this restaurant conversation. But back in history, as the economy began to improve after the downturn in 08, 09, all of a sudden there was a return to full-on dining. And so the wine bar model, you know, we didn't have to save our pennies as much as we once did. So now we want full-on dining. And terroir wasn't providing that. Terroir became the place, well, yeah, let's have a glass of grape juice before we go on to this restaurant where people used to spend their night at terroir. So things changed. So I'm the one that needs to change. So I do love evolution and I and I need to evolve a little bit more. Terroir, I look forward to the next day. I never linger upon the past. I look to grow going forward. There were once five terroirs. Now there are one, definitely, Trebekah. Let's say one, another one, half, the seasonal terroir on the High Line. But we had to close Murray Hill. We had to close Park Slope. And in Marco and my separation, we closed the East Village, but it was rebranded. And when I think back, I do think about those and the lessons learned. Did we open up too many too fast? I don't think so. I think we made some poor real estate decisions. I used to think and say that every community would love a terroir. Maybe I just have to choose better communities or different communities. The world... I do believe, still wants and needs more terroir. The wine conversation is ever-expanding. At least that's what we, as wine people, tell ourselves. I think the conversation, though, needs to change. And I would like to think terroir can be an important part of that conversation. You know, talking about thinking about the next day, I mean, I have to say, you really impressed me with how you handled the breakup with Marco, just in terms of how it seemed to affect you. I mean... I think when people go through breakups, sometimes it devastates them for years, whether they're willing to admit it or not. And I felt like you, I mean, there were times where I think before the breakup, I felt more tension from you coming from you than after. I felt like you handled it professionally. You had an esprit de corps about you at a time where I think me, I would have wanted to go home, get in bed and cry for a while, maybe for like a year, you know? And I've had bad moments like that before, you know, where I've had like a year where it really took me to to get over emotionally some kind of loss related to restaurants. So was the key to that the fact that you had two kids? Was the key to that that you had a wife that had been a rock for you in several instances? Why do you think you were strong like that? Two things. One, the family. And, And now, you said it earlier, but now I really felt you've got a family you need to support. You must continue to work. And even though you may have just one bricks and mortar terroir and that's it, well, go make it fucking work. And then I'll also harken back to maybe that Protestant Toronto upbringing, hide your emotions. You know, you you have this work ethic of we get up every day, we're going to work every day. If something's going wrong, you don't fucking complain. You just do your goddamn job. And that's how my father has been throughout his entire life and still gets up every day now, puts on a jacket and tie and still works. My mom, who's just shy of 80, does the same goddamn thing. It's unbelievable to me. And that's it. Coupled with the fact, I do truly love what I do. So, yeah, my world shrunk. But I still was doing what I love to do. My world changed. But I still get to do what I love to do. My world did not crash. Health-wise, everybody's fine. There are many, many, many more important things 
to do in this world than to serve grape juice. And a personal philosophy, I, I don't need to tell anyone this, but somewhere in the back of my brain is that, you know what, if tomorrow I'm going to be a ditch digger, I'm going to be the best fucking ditch digger there is. It doesn't matter to me. But again, I'm ecstatic that I get to do what I love to do. I remember as an aside one time when you and Marco were still strong in your partnership, you said to me, I hope that Marco takes a marketing class so that he can understand how to better market himself. Did you see a difference in your approach to what I would say in very 2016 Lango is a personal brand and Marco's approach? And was there any kind of rift over that? Or was it just a, a difference of opinion? Or am I totally off? Listen, re- relationships are hard. They are very hard. They're hard on the just on the personal level. And they are equally and, and differently hard in the, the professional business level. And on for some people, maybe the marriage of Marco and Paul was a perfect marriage. You know, one dedicated, focused, uber strong, back of the house guy with one dedicated focused, uber strong, front of the house guy, like, oh my God, this is like marriage made in restaurant heaven. How could they fuck up? Well, we fucked up because we both came to the table with an opinion that was ironclad. Communication is everything. And we could not communicate properly to each other. We talked to each other, but we talked over each other, under each other, all of that shit. And to be a great conversationalist, someone has to listen. Maybe we didn't listen to each other properly. Um, Maybe we didn't want to listen to each other properly. We spoke to each other poorly. So many different things come to play. I respect Marco absolutely. Respected him then, respect him now. Um, I hope he feels the same way towards me. Part of me is somewhat embarrassed that we may find greater success apart from each other. But if that's life, it's life. I wish him well. I will do everything I can to help him become a greater success than I could make him. But these are hard. And, you know, when you get together, if the opportunity comes for someone to go into a business relationship with someone, I cannot beg you, plead enough to say, have as many conversations, have over-converse about your respective cultures. Because Marco and I coming out of that Danny Meyer world and that Danny Meyer world extended into the craft world because Tom, like we did at Hearth, took that enlightened hospitality idea to craft too. They didn't reinvent the wheel. So I'm thinking, okay, so Marco has already been brought up in this enlightened hospitality world. What do I need to talk to him about? Like the same philosophy that we said to each other every day at Gramercy Tavern, it's there, it's ingrained in who he is. Well, lo and behold, that wasn't the case. Not that Marco was wrong in his belief, but he wasn't as impassioned about these things as I was, because now it was his restaurant. And not that he had changed, but he had other focuses. My focuses were still on those, you know, the five tenets of hospitality, that whole Danny, that, and I still live and breathe, but that wasn't Marco. And you know what? We never got down and dirty in that conversation that maybe, just maybe, could have prevented the breakup. But I'm not, uh, I lament what has happened, 
I miss aspects. I miss that partnership of someone who has, is as focused on food as I am on all the front of the house shit. But it was right for Marco and I to break up for our for both of us to potentially go on and do what we ultimately love to do. And I think what Hearth becomes, it's still becoming, is going to be perfectly Marco and a greater joint than I could have ever made it. And terroir, hopefully, in the same way, will do exactly the same thing. So I don't think terroir's greatest days have been had. I think they are very much in front of me. And I like growth. I aspire for change every single day. I hate, I despise constancy. I don't mind consistency, but I don't want things to be the same. And even if I have to go to work every day and fucking agitate, I agitate because I want a new challenge. I want to change. I want to, you know, say to myself and my team, but why? Or what if? I was one of those kids who was in front of his parents, but why? But why? And I never want to ever lose that. I'm not saying my parents always gave me the goddamn answer, but that's how I am now with myself especially and with my team. And I am as invigorated by what I do and what we do as a community as I've always been. I've been doing this for 30 years now. And I still am as enthused as I've always been. Now, with the beverage side, I think I could say, well, these are the phases of Paul. This is the history of Paul. Here's a capsule history of how Paul Greco handled beverage at different points in his career. But I think it would be more interesting if you told me. To be honest, I don't see phases. I've always been following the same line. The straight line, you know, though I'm not a fan of you know, Euclidean geometry. I like the non-Euclidean geometry stuff. But I don't see big changes in what I've done. I don't see, you know, I guess some could reference the whole summer of Riesling thing and say, what the fuck was that all about? But, you know, for me, that wasn't a big effort. That, that was just a natural extension of that thread. I've always been, back to my teenage days, early adult days, you know, it could have been so much easier in my university days to like Bruce Springsteen and Bon Jovi. I probably could have gotten a fucking shitload more chicks if I liked those things. But no, I gravitated towards those things that were off the beaten path, music especially at the time. So to be honest, I want to hang out with the goth chicks, just saying, or, or the alternative kids or whatever was going on. And every week with that party that my friend and I threw, we challenged ourselves to be different. So in this capacity, in this industry, back to what I said, you get to be, you get to influence all things. I see that. So I saw it, you know, if, if I'm the Riesling guy, that's not how I view myself. I view myself as the guy who fights the good fight for those grapes or wines or region or producers that don't get their proper due in the marketplace. That's, that is my guiding light. On a daily basis. And, you know, in terms of how I buy, yeah, I never want to repeat. I hopefully never buy the same wine twice. Never. It's a world of fucking grape juice out there. So others may define the phases of Paul Greco. I don't. I'd like you to tell me about what Serge Hoshar meant to you in your life. Not about the wine part. 
about you. Yeah, you know, to be honest, I don't think about Serge or Musar as wine necessarily. Because, again, it's just grape juice with alcohol. Let's be honest about it. And, um, you know, I'll quote Serge. You know, I, I, I want truth, truthfulness in whatever I do. And, you know, Serge provided me, happened to provide me with a beverage that was that. But the man himself, he to me, I obviously never knew him when he was a kid, but he was one of those guys who said, why? He certainly said it to Emile Peynot when he went to the University of Bordeaux to study wine. He's, he's on record as saying, you know, I went to school, I studied under Peynot to learn how not to make wine. So I'd like to think that I'm cut from a part of that same fucking cloth that Serge was. Always ask why. Always explore. There, you know, correctness does not... <laughs> I'm not entranced by it. It doesn't motivate me. I don't want correctness for fuck's sakes. I don't, you know, same thing with, maybe the better way to say that is perfection does not engage me. It disappoints me ultimately. I want an edge. I want something wrong. Not that I necessarily want to improve upon it, but there is a journey to be had with those types of things. But with Serge, it was, it was about the journey, man. And it was a lifelong journey. And he was that twinkle in his eye. He was the most youthful individual I've ever encountered. Regardless, I knew Serge for, I think, about 15 years, 10 years definitively. And every year he got younger. His insightfulness, the word, all of that stuff amused the crap out of me. It admittedly frustrated the crap out of me. I'd He'd ask me to oversee a tasting for him and I'd sit there and, you know, I could see it in Serge and Serge would go, listen, I don't want to talk anymore. You know, you need, people need to ask questions of me. And then you'd ask a question. He'd be like, I'm not going to give you an answer. Like, what the fuck do you mean you're not going to give me an answer? But that was Serge. And I think that's a better way to go through life. I find more I learned more about someone, and considering we're in an interview process right now, by the questions they ask than by the answers they give. To be honest, Levy, I'd rather be on your side of the table than the one I'm on. I'd rather be the guy asking the questions. I want to be the guy in the conversation who is listening to people. And I think ultimately, Serge had a lot to say, but he was also a great listener. He paused not to physically hear people but he the land spoke to him the life spoke to everything spoke to him and he allowed himself to pay fucking attention and so few people today actually pay attention all of us think we have something to say not a lot of us really have something important to say and serge may have had important things to say, but it was how he listened, how he was attuned to things. Those are the memories that I take away from Serge. And I've had the honor, I was blessed, I was serendipitous to meet incredible wine people in my 30 years. You know, Serge certainly one of them and he's at the, the top of the list. But Jacques Lardiere, same thing from Jadot. Like he was another man and he did have some insane, and does have insane fucking things to say. 
but also a great listener. If you listen to him talk, it's about him listening. That's what he's telling you, that he was paying attention to all of these thing, different things going on in the vineyard. That's pretty fucking cool to me. That's what I want to be when I grow up. Someone who has learned to listen. Do you think younger sommeliers look at you as a, a role model of kind? I mean, have you I'm had- not so sure younger sommeliers, you know, what we lack, and I'm going to use a word now that is, forgive me, personally, a theme for 2016, elderism. And elderism, I'm gathering, does not exist in the dictionary. But I think if you hear the word, you know exactly what I'm referring to. And I think in so many different areas of life and industries, there's a lot less attention being paid to their elders. Now, I, I honestly have no clue how people view me and what I've done. I think of the the broader hospitality community and the beverage community specifically. It's never been greater. Never, you know, the number of people doing it, the passions expressed, all of that is incredible. I do bemoan though the this focus that I am going to embark upon of learning life lessons from my elders is sometimes lost on the newer generation of Psalms. The belief that, oh my God, I just had this wine and I'm like acting like I'm the first one to discover the goddamn thing. Chill the fuck out. None of this is really new. Like you can, especially when it comes to, let's reference food for a second. A lot of people try a dish like, oh my God, I've never had this before. Well, there's very few dishes that are ever invented in the last 25, 30 years. And the wines that we're drinking today that are the new cool wines, all of that stuff has always existed. And damn, someone has already put on their list long before you do. So I think a little, and God forbid, I'm, I beg people, don't respect. Am I allowed to say don't respect me? No, that's not what I really want to say. But I wish for a broad generation of older folk, of Psalms who've been doing this for a lot of years. I had the pleasure of interacting with Roger DeGorn back when I first arrived in the city. And Roger still works the streets of New York. I want Roger DeGorn put on a fucking pedestal wherever the fuck it is, and every psalm should have to spend half an hour in his company learning how the great man has done it for a long time. I would say the same thing about Joe D'Alessio across the river in Brooklyn, another great guy. My 25 years in New York City have allowed me to encounter, work with, say hello to a lot of people. And I guess maybe I have an old school mentality that I do like my elders. I respect my elders. I learned that when I worked with my grandfather and my father. And I would love a little bit more of that maybe in today's day and age. Paul Greco, he was the child that always asked, but why? Thank you very much for being here today. Pleasure, Levy. Thank you. Paul Greco of Terroir in Tribeca in New York. All Drink to That is hosted and produced by myself, Levy Dalton. Aaron Scala has contributed original pieces. Editorial assistance has been provided by Bill Kimsey. The show music was performed and composed by Rob Moose and Thomas Bartlett. Show artwork by Alicia Tenoyan. T-shirts, sweatshirts, coffee mugs, and so much more, including show stickers, notebooks, and even gift wrap, are available for sale if you check the show website, 
alldrinktothatpod.com. That's I-L-L, drinktothat, P-O-D.com, which is the same place you'd go to sign up for our email list or to make one of the crucially important donations that help keep this show operating. You can donate from anywhere using PayPal or Stripe on the show website. Remember to hit subscribe or to follow this show in your favorite podcast app, please. That's super important to see every episode. And thank you for listening.